Welcome back to the Understanding Urbanism podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is the podcast that accompanies the book of the same name, Understanding Urbanism, which is edited by me, Dallas Rogers, Adrian Keane, Taran Elizahe, and Jacqueline Nelson. The book is published by Palgrave Macmillan, and like always, it's good to have you along. In this episode, we'll be talking about Chapter 4, Planning Cities. The chapter's written by Adrian Keane and Paul Jones, and like always, I'm paraphrasing and quoting Adrian and Paul in this episode. Adrian Keane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dallas. It'd be great if you could just start off by telling me who you are and who your co-author is. Oh, well, my co-author is Paul Jones, Associate Professor Paul Jones. Uh, Both Paul and I have got a background in planning, actually. We're both practising, have been practising planners. I think Paul's got a much more interesting career than me. He's been a planner at Sydney, but he also has been in, in regional parts of Australia, but in the Pacific as well. And with his background, he has a great interest now in and practice in informal urbanism and has fantastic connections, um, has done a lot of work in Papua New Guinea and in Indonesia as well. My background is many different things. Um, I've done environmental health, environmental management. I work for Clean Up Australia and as a planner, I've worked in local government in both metropolitan and regional areas and also in private practice. And here we are. Here we are. And as I say, this podcast episode is an interpretation of Adrian's and Paul's work by myself, so any errors are my own. And it's important to note that I recorded this episode on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, Australia. My five key takeaways from this chapter are, first, urban planning has a substantive dimension which relates to the reasons for doing urban planning and the outcomes of that planning process, and an operational dimension, which relates to the actual doing of or the methods of urban planning. Second, urban planning emerges from the decisions over how to use and develop land. Land is important to urban planning, and we've talked about this already in the podcast. Third, one of the problems with the utopian urban visions that we'll talk about is that they're too detached from the complex realities of our cities. Fourth, planning has been contested for a long time, and there's a variety of reasons why it's contested, and there's a diverse group of people that will contest urban planning, and we'll find out why. And fifth, People should be given the opportunity to be involved in urban planning decision-making because urban planning shapes their lives. Adrienne and Paul start their chapter by noting that they're both practising urban planners, and Adrienne just talked us through that. So this is the position they're writing this chapter from. It draws on their experiences as being built environment practitioners and academics. They use the evolution of city planning over time to make some broad and intersecting observations about urban planning today, in fairly big picture terms. But before we get into the chapter, let's hear from Gunika Singh, 
another professional planner, about her role as an urban planner in Sydney. Angunika Singh, Specialist Planner at InnoWest Council. When people ask me at a dinner table what I do, I tell them I play SimCity for a living. Sounds easy, right? It's actually a bit tricky than it sounds. Almost all of us catch the train or the bus every day. Walk the dog in the park, go to the theatre, go for a swim in the pool, borrow a book from the library. This all didn't happen by itself. There are a lot of experts involved in making this happen, in making cities come alive. Urban planning requires multiple disciplines from architects, urban designers, environmentalists, builders, engineers, technologists to come together to create places to live, work and play. My particular role at Council as a specialist planner is to bring these disciplines together. I'm an urban designer, land use and transport planner with qualifications in architecture and urbanism. And my job is to provide advice, by which I mean good advice, on integrating land use with infrastructure to support sustainable growth. I have been involved in developing planning policies, writing reports, particularly with a focus on sustainability, livability and resilience. The job takes a strong knowledge of regulations and codes to make sure everything is legal and the decisions you make in the public sector are balanced with minimal negative impact on communities of today and tomorrow. That was Gunika Singh, a professional planner, talking you through a day in the life of an urban planner in Sydney. So as you can hear, urban planning is important because cities around the world are facing enormous challenges, and many of them are urbanising rapidly. And we've already talked about some of the challenges of urbanisation in this podcast. Growing population pressures, housing and other forms of inequality, access to food and water, the complex transport needs of our growing cities and so on. The aim of contemporary urban planning is to try to make our cities better places by controlling development in socially equitable ways. And this is not always as easy as it sounds. The modern urban planning system has become a sophisticated and at times complex methodology for controlling development. And Adrian and Paul present a short history of modern planning to unpack this complexity. They start with a simple but foundational feature of urban planning, that urban planning emerges from the decisions about how to use and develop land. Urban planning is the methodology about making decisions over land. That's what, that's what urban planning is about. Uh, and to do that, urban planning generally fits into you know, a governance structure. Usually there's a, a government and there's legislation, there are rules, regulations, there are uh, plans. And there are two things that I think within that make planning, which is what do we need to do or what do we need to understand to make decisions over land for now and into the future? And that is strategic planning. And then the immediate decisions about enabling the changes over land need control. So we have development control. So that's really what urban planning is in in that context. It's decision-making over land made up of strategic planning and development control. 
We can see the beginnings of this practice when we look at the long history of European villages, towns and cities, many of which developed to ensure agricultural and food security, or to provide defensive positions or to meet various social and cultural needs. From the Greek and Roman empires to the replacement of London after the Great Fire of 1666, or the remodelling of medieval Paris in the late 19th century. The history of urban planning strongly mirrors the growth of towns and cities, and many modern planning systems emerge from the challenges of dealing with the negative impacts of rural to urban migration, and the industrial revolutions in the United Kingdom and Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. A technological revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries created a suite of new urban employment opportunities during the Industrial Revolution, and this became the catalyst for mass migration from the countryside into cities in Europe. When we look at history of, of cities, you know, there's always been these little blips and fabulous things that brought around change. And I think in the industrial era, it was an absolute seismic shift in how cities are operating. We saw thousands and thousands of people leave agricultural areas and go into the cities because the industry, the new technologies were bringing about new economic advantages. And the flood of migration into cities really just made cities a terrible, terrible place to be. Polluted, dirty, horrible living yeah. conditions, bad places to work, ironically. Yeah, ironically. And yes, there are all sorts of issues. There were the health issues, the environmental decline issues, the social issues of proper payment and, and all those things around uh, people's well-being. And because it was so disastrous, you know, the, the powers that be at the time um, need to intervene. And I think that is the critical time when we start seeing planning as something that is done occur. So planning is an intervention and it's an intervention around what we do about, about land. And it really started to happen through that um, in, industrialised time. So these new industrial cities had huge impacts on people's health. And this was especially the case for the urban poor. So some of the industrialists, those who owned the factories and the businesses in the industrial city, realised that their businesses needed a healthy workforce and they started financing and building new villages. Then a little bit later, we get a whole bunch of what we might call urban designers, maybe urban planners that start coming up with utopian visions for the city. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Yeah, well, they did emerge really from, I think, reflections on that industrial time. And some of the work that happened at that time, I mean, before uh, we can actually put brackets around utopian urban designers, there are people like... Robert Owen, for example, who built a beautiful place in New Lanark. I've actually been there, really uh, gorgeous place, because he wanted to grow cotton on a river and so he wanted to make sure that his workers were well looked after. So he built housing, he built schools, he employed teachers and doctors and really all about the worker. George Capri did the same thing in Bourneville in Birmingham, right? So he wanted to make chocolate and things for all of us, but he was very careful about, you know, looking after the people. 
So from there and inspired, I think, by them, we see a whole raft of of urban designers, people like Ebenezer Howard, for example. And what these utopian visionaries were all about was how can we design urban areas at different scales, at city scale or even a suburban lot, that actually makes it a better place to live. And they were motivated by uh, well-being of people, the well-being of nature, but also particularly about the aesthetic and the form. How does this work uh, better? How can we get the most out of this, this space? And some of the legacy is still still there. Uh, we can see that in, in suburbs in Sydney and in, in, in many uh, cities where we might have these amazing high-rise buildings, for example, that, that follow the radiant city idea. But it was all about how can we design that space, make this urban area work better. So we've dealt with a couple of the big takeaways from this chapter. The idea that urban planning has a substantive and operational dimension, that urban planning is about decisions over the use and development of land, and that the utopian urban visions were too detached from the complex realities of cities. The fourth big takeaway from this chapter is that planning has been contested for a very long time. So planning hasn't always had a happy life. It's been contested over time by different people for different reasons. Why do people contest urban planning? Uh, I, I think because of the history of planning, it developed into a really top-down thing. And the power with that was was with a real minority of of people, if you like, probably the majority at the time. So, you know, the the powerful people, um, the white people, if you like, making decisions over everybody. So they set a set of rules for the planning of the land and they enforce those rules from the top down on everybody else. Very much so, very much so. And that was probably okay at some point when we needed to have great interventions when things were really bad. But what actually happens in that top-down approach is that it's very short-sighted. We can't keep up with change if we're planning like that. We can't take a master plan and go, there you go, there's the most beautiful suburb you've ever seen, it functions well, we're going to keep it like that. That's not how the world works. The world changes all the time. And so in terms of keeping up with change, planning was really faulty. So think about when the car turned up or high-rise skyscrapers started to be built. You know, planning just couldn't cope with all those things. Then because of the the dominance of planning by a certain part of society, we're not thinking about other people in society. We're not thinking about different cultures. We're not thinking about gender diversity. We're not thinking about people's you know, right to have a say about what happens in their in their spaces. So planning being a one-way thing, a dictatorial thing, if you like, um, has received a lot of criticism because in the end, it actually fails to do what it sets out to do, which is about providing good places for everybody to live. Can you give me an example of like a classic time that people stood up against the planning system? Oh, there's so many. Um, my favourite, because, uh, you know, I have a bit of a bent 
towards the environment. I, I think about the environmental marches and I think about uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, that seminal book really that, that talked about the decision to allow industry to pollute rivers and to uh, pollute the air. Uh, and planners allowed that by zoning land and allowing those things to, to happen, really brought about a lot of anger in people and they stood up. And then we started to see rules and regulations and more control over the environment. And that influenced what we did with planning. That's a, that's a great thing. We also saw civil rights marches. We've seen feminism marches about talking about rights to the city and people feeling safe and and planning having to shift its notion to make sure that it's actually engaging these people as well in decisions about what we do with land. In the 1960s and 70s, there were growing concerns about the lack of control over development and particularly concern about the destruction of natural environments and built form heritage. Lots of people and groups started to question the processes and outcomes of urban planning, and many of the older planning decisions were now viewed as problematic. People started to ask, what is planning for? How is it done? And who should be involved? And these are reasonable questions. In Australia, we see the rise of Indigenous land rights and movements like the Green Bands. In the United States, New York resident Jane Jacobs stands up against developments that will destroy existing neighbourhoods and communities. Even the idea of suburbia itself is challenged by new design movements such as new urbanism. So the idea of participatory planning becomes a powerful idea from the 1960s and it remains so today. But there are still heated debates about how we should include the people of our cities in the planning and design of our cities. In cities today, why is it so important today that we give people a say in the planning of their cities? There are two reasons. One, I think it's about ethics and the other reason is about improving outcomes. So ethically, as a planner, I think it is important to engage everybody because the decisions that we make impact everybody. So I'm compelled. I think planning should be compelled to do that engagement. The other thing is, and my practice shows, and you know, lots of academics and practitioners will tell you the same thing, is that planning is so flawed. The practice is very flawed. You can't possibly come up with a plan that's that's perfect. You can't possibly know everything. So engaging people is really important because you understand what their issues are, how they may be impacted by decisions, but they are also great sources of evidence. They know more about their community than a planner ever could or the planning decision ever could. And not just the community, I'm talking about, you know, business, every all the stakeholders, having them involved in, in working out what needs to uh, happen over a place actually should bring about a much better outcome and that would mean that everyone has a stake in it. So a plan is only as good as it is when it's implemented. So you can have as many plans if you like but if there's no buy-in, nothing's going to happen. 
The role of planning and planners undergoes a significant shift in the 1980s and 90s with the adoption of neoliberal ideologies by many city governments. This saw a push for economic growth at the expense of, in inverted commas, good planning. Planning was anchored within the economic rationalist tradition and infrastructure provision, such as transport, roads, water and sewerage, were either sold off or contracted out to the private sector, and we talked about this in the first episode. The private sector started to employ their own planners, and they began to inform how the city would be reshaped. Government planners started to lose control of the planning system as it was co-opted by the private sector, and then community groups started to lose trust in the planning system. At the same time, many in the city started to comment on the lack of integration between the various departments and levels of government that are involved in urban planning. Well, it's really big, planning. You know, planning a city, it's just huge, and there are so many elements to it. So if we think about integration, say, even across a government, you might have a department, the Department of Planning, and then there's another department, which is the Department of Transport, and you might have another department, which is the Department of Environment. So how are they talking to each other? So we need to make sure that that everyone is talking together and sharing what they know. Then you've got, uh, say, vertical integration even in government. So you might have a national government saying this is what we're going to do with our cities. Then you might have a regional government that says this is what I'm going to do with our cities. And then you might have a local government that said, well, this is my city, you know, this is our city. How are they talking to each other? Because all of all of those um, governments have influence over land. So how do we do that? So that's just the complexity in government. So then when we think outside the government structure, we've got everybody else. We've got all the business, we've got all the community, we've got all the interests there. How do we also bring those together? And that's that's where it's really, really tricky, is trying to integrate all those things to come out with a better plan. So in the end, urban planning as a methodology as a professional practice, is a complicated process that's going to get even more complicated as our cities grow and expand. But before we go, I'm going to leave the last word to Gunika Singh. As planners, we have a real opportunity to make positive impact on people's lives and tackle the issues that our cities are facing right now, from the very local challenges like congestion, pollution, affordability, to global issues like climate change. Cities are complex, exciting beasts, and we have the knowledge and expertise to live better and more comfortable urban lives. Our job is to make cities to serve the populations that we don't know yet which are coming and the needs that are coming. And the best part of this job is you actually sometimes get to see how your decisions have made people's lives better.